If you turn with me to the passage in which today's teaching is based, it comes from Matthew chapter 16, and I'll be reading from verses 13 through 26. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? And this is God's word. Now, decades ago, I found one sermon in a stash of boxes of tapes that I've kept of famous preachers that I used to listen to. And uh, there was one that struck me. Uh, it was from my favorite preacher, Tim Keller during a very critical time in my own spiritual formation. And the Lord used this one sermon, and it was actually from this text, so it became one of my favorite passages, that it really shaped and steered my own rediscovery of the gospel. Why do I say this? Um, because a lot of you are on a journey, a spiritual journey here, and you're many of you are coming back to the church, some of you coming to the church for the first time, and some of you, having grown up in the church, and really not engaging with the mission of Christ, really not engaging with uh, the values of the kingdom, and all of a sudden the doors, to, the keys to, or the lock to that door has been unlocked, and you've walked in, and all of a sudden there's a, a shifting or, or a rediscovery, what we call the rediscovery of the gospel. And for me, it began with a hard saying that came from this text. Now, Jesus says in verses 25 to 26, if you give up your life, you're going to find your life. If you give up yourself, you're going to find yourself. He says, if you lose yourself for me, that's how you'll find yourself. That word self is the Greek word psyche, where we get the word psychology. We're forever trying to find out who we are. By the way, that's, that's the reason why we're angry, it's why, it's why we're fearful, why we're always anxious, and why we work so hard, because we're really trying to find ourselves in something that's going to be meaningful and purposeful in our lives. How do you find yourself? 
How do you answer the question, why am I here? Jesus Christ says, I have the answer. And uh, that, it's a hard saying. And there's four things we're going to see here. One, the greatness of Jesus. Two, misunderstanding Jesus or misunderstanding that greatness. Three, uh, the pursuit or how we find an identity. Lastly, how do you actually find it? The greatness of Jesus, how we misunderstand the greatness of Jesus, how we pursue an identity, and then how we actually find it. First, we're going to look at the greatness of Jesus. Verse 13, Jesus asks his disciples here, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they respond, they respond and they say, some believe that you're John the Baptist, others believe you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But then Jesus asks them, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, the Apostle Peter, his answer is remarkable. He says, you are the Christ. You are the, whom God sent. You are the one whom God sent. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. What does that mean? Peter's saying, you are more than a prophet. Because all the other prophets, they, you know, whether it's Elijah, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, they pointed ahead to the day of salvation, but not you. You always point to yourself. All the other prophets, they teach but then they say, declares the Lord, thus saith the Lord. Then they say, we verify this, amen. But you say, you begin oftentimes with, I tell you the truth. Verily, verily, I say unto you. The prophets, they point to a way to be reconciled with God. But you, you always point to yourself. You see, it's a remarkable confession. And Jesus Christ, he bless, blesses him. Verses 17 to 20, he says, whatever it is that you're saying here, it didn't come from yourself. It had to have come from God. And on this rock, on Peter's name, Peter means rock, on this rock, Petros, I will build my church. You, Peter, are a living stone. You, Peter, are the rock on which I will build my church. What does that mean? Every other religion, every other religion, uh, the leader says, salvation, here's how you get it. You got to do this, you got to do this. You've got to obey this, listen to this teaching. Jesus is the only leader that says salvation doesn't come through obeying, but about seeing me. Salvation doesn't come by doing a series of things, but it's about seeing and trusting who I am, the one to whom the prophets point, trusting my word as truth. It's not through your obedience, but through me. It's through my obedience, not through your works, but through my works. And until you get that, you're not in the church. You don't get Jesus. You could have been growing up in the church. It doesn't matter. You are not in the church until you actually get that, until that, until that uh, uh, crystallizes in you. Now, Peter, he gets it. He says, you are the Christ. You are the one that God sent to save you are the one that will restore the world. You are the one, the coming king that we've been anticipating. It's a remarkable confession of the greatness of Jesus. Now, how do we misunderstand Jesus? <clears throat> how do we misunderstand his greatness? Peter says in verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He's saying you are, the, the, you are ultimate beauty. You are majestic. He says you are the king of glory. And Jesus says, yes, blessed are you. But then in verse 21, from that time on, it says, Jesus presents his plan for how he will overcome evil, for how he will become king. He says he's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be handed over to people, and he will die, and he'll be raised again. In other words, what he says is, what he says is I'm going to defeat evil, 
But it's through weakness, not through my strength. It's not through power and might, but through my surrender and through my brokenness. Peter is saying, you are the son that the prophets spoke about. But then Jesus counters. <clears throat> he says, Peter says, you are, the, you, are the, you are the son. Jesus says, Jesus counters and he says, I am the suffering son. Peter says, you are the servant, the one that God sent. Jesus responds, he says, I am the suffering servant that the prophet spoke about. I'm gonna suffer, I'm gonna be oppressed, I'm gonna be struck down for my people. Now, that didn't fit into Peter's view of God, nor our view. And so Peter says in verse 22, never. He says, never, I'll never let this happen to you. And Jesus rebukes Peter. And in verse 23, he says, you are Satan. He calls him a stumbling block. Literally in the Greek, that word is scandalon, which it translated to be temptation. So wait, if you think about this, in verse 17, Jesus blesses Peter. He affirms Peter. And just only a few verses later, verse 23, he practically curses Peter, and he does it in public. Now think about this. You would never curse somebody in public unless you absolutely meant to, unless it was absolutely intentional. The author of this book wants us to see this. Why? Because Peter misunderstood what greatness is. Peter misunderstood the greatness of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. There the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove, the text says. And the heavens opened up and God says, this is my son whom I love, whom I am well pleased, with whom I am well pleased. I delight in my son. I'm doting on my son. But then in Matthew chapter 4, that same spirit that descended on Jesus like a dove, it's, the text actually says it led Jesus, he led Jesus in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, Satan tempts Jesus three times. And in each of those times, each of those cases, he says, I can give you greatness. He says, I can make you great. You can have all these things without ever having to suffer, without ever having to go to the cross. The cross was his mission. That's why he came. And yet each time, Jesus, he clings to the word of God. And using the word of God, he rejects Satan. So when Peter now rebukes Jesus and says, no, never, I can't let you suffer, Jesus says, you are Satan. Because Peter's trying to tempt Jesus, the word scandal on, to avoid the cross, a cosmic scandal, to avoid his mission, to reject God, and God's purpose for why he was sent here, it was the same way that Satan tried to tempt Jesus. Peter's saying, you are the one whom God has sent. You are the king, the great king. You are God's servant. You see, God's servant, kings, they don't suffer. Kings prosper. Kings, have, they're wealthy. Kings are powerful. You need to build your kingdom right now. You need an entourage. You need to go on campaigns. And verse 23, it's Jesus' way of saying, you're misunderstanding what true greatness is. Don't you dare try to fit me into your view, your own view of greatness. Because you see, your view of greatness, that view has no room for sacrifice. It's got no room for surrender. It's got no room for suffering or trouble or grief or discomfort. It's got no room for the cross. In verse 23, Jesus says, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. 
In other words, don't you know the way to ultimate wealth is through giving. The way to ultimate victory is through defeat, through the surrender. The only way you can truly fill yourself is by emptying yourself. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be humiliated, and I'm going to die. But the kingdom of God advances through my suffering, through my humiliation, and through my death. Friends, the essence of Christian maturity is the is to avoid placing Jesus's narrative, Jesus's story into your story. To try to fit Jesus into your understanding of greatness, to try to fit Jesus into your understanding of what you want and your desires to justify what you want. We have a lot of people like that. We got a lot of people in our congregation who who Justify, who use the Bible, who use their spirituality, who use, I'm growing and I'm, and I'm learning and, I'm, and, and I feel good about myself. And we use that as a way to justify the things that we want because we're fitting Jesus into our plans. We're feeding Jesus into our agenda. The essence of Christian maturity is to place your story, more and more of your story, into Jesus' story. To place your suffering into his suffering to place your sacrifice, that call to sacrifice, into Jesus' sacrifice. To sometimes give up, to lose, to be humiliated, to sacrifice, to understand defeat. Sometimes experience humiliation and death. And to trust that if the kingdom of God advances through Jesus' suffering and humiliation and death, then he will truly advance through your suffering and humiliation and even death. You got plans? You got resolutions? Everyone wants to be great. And Jesus here curses Peter because he wants all of us to see how we all misunderstand what it means to become great. And when you misunderstand the greatness of Jesus, you risk forsaking the mission of Jesus. And when you forsake the mission of Jesus, you forsake what it means to sacrifice, to surrender, to suffer. You know, we live in a world today, everything, life is just about avoiding suffering, to avert suffering. That's why we pad our resumes. That's why we pad our retirement packages. Because what is enough? Because when you're thinking about the grand scheme of things, you want ultimate security. That's what we're going for. We don't just want enough. We want more than enough. We don't know what enough is anymore. We're disoriented because we don't know who we are. And so when you forsake the mission of Jesus, you start to forsake his suffering. You forsake his sacrifice. You forsake surrender. Peter's view of greatness is our view of greatness. We want greatness. We want to be able to find ourselves without sacrifice, without, without surrender. When Jesus says greatness comes through suffering, through sacrifice, and through surrender. And only when you understand that, that's when you'll find yourself. Now, apart from that, how do we get an identity? How do we find ourselves? There's two ways that we generally find ourselves. One way is through the traditional way, the traditional approach, what I call like the Eastern approach, the family, the uh, responsibility and loyalty and duty to your family. We are uh, especially, and this should speak to a lot of us here uh, this morning, 
When the family becomes the central uh, way by you find approval and acceptance and a sense of worth, a sense of identity, your decisions are never going to be your own because you will never diverge from your family. You will never disagree with your family. You will always uphold your family. They will always, you will always sacrifice for your family first. You will always surrender for your family first and only, nothing else. In other words, family approval will rule you, will rule your decisions. So in order to find yourself, you ultimately end up denying yourself, losing yourself. You experience great affirmation and sense of worth through your family, but that can become incredibly oppressive. You pay a price for that. It has a huge price. The other way that we tend to find ourselves is what we call the postmodern approach because it only came out, in, I would say, probably in, in the, in the mid-1800s uh, into what we call the Western approach, and that's through the pursuit of our own desires. And that means you're going to find yourself through self-indulgence, self-fulfillment. You're only going to find things that are fulfill you, that are meaningful for you, to discover and understand your true potential, your options, your freedom, what makes you happy. Now, when you pursue it that way, when you approach things that way, you're going to experience great affirmation, but it's also incredibly oppressive. You pay a huge price for that. The traditional approach you're going to find yourself through duty, through responsibility. But the postmodern approach, you're going to find yourself through your desires. They're both incredibly rewarding at times, but incredibly limiting, all insufficient, and very oppressive. Jesus says, I want you to have an identity, but you cannot sustain one apart from me, apart from finding yourself in me. So he says in verse 25, lose yourself for me and you will find yourself. If anyone will come after me, he must first deny himself. That's lose yourself. Take up the cross. Take up the cross and follow me. In other words, take up the cross. Build a pattern of your life around my suffering, around my death, around the cross, and then you will discover who you really are. Now notice, Jesus doesn't say, just die. He doesn't say that. That's not the point. Because then you would have completely lost yourself. You would have completely denied yourself. So a Christian is not looking for suffering. He's not looking to be humiliated. He doesn't boast in the fact that he's suffering or he's humiliated. But Jesus also doesn't say, I suffer so that you would never have to suffer again. So a Christian is not, uh, is not building his life around self-protection and his own security He's not trying to, uh, he's not building his life around self-preservation. Jesus suffered on the cross. That's the ultimate suffering. So that when you suffer, you can become like him. And only when you realize that Jesus took care of the ultimate guilt, only when you realize that he took care of the ultimate condemnation, the ultimate suffering, the only suffering that can truly end you, truly make you lose yourself, this is the beginning of getting an unshakable identity. Remember, Jesus doesn't say whoever saves his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will save it. He says whoever saves himself will lose his life. Whoever loses himself will find it. How do you find it? That's our last point. How do you apply this? A couple things. One, you've got to stop trying to save yourself. You gotta stop trying to save yourself by placing your identity into your looks or your figure or your physique or your reputation 
or your wealth or your status or your pedigree as a way to be acceptable in front of other people. By the way, people always ask me, what do you mean by pedigree? It's your family's reputation. What he's saying is daddy's money ain't going to save you. That's what he's saying. These are the natural ways that we find an identity. You have to, you have to fight that impulse to define yourself, you know, uh, because if you don't, if you don't do that, you're going to eventually, you're going to eventually uh, learn the hard way that one, these things are not sufficient. Uh, they're not going to be able to support your fragile ego. Two, you did nothing to earn any of these things. Look, Malcolm, Malcolm Gladwell, he's a, he's a best-selling author, uh, New York Times best-selling author, and he wrote a book called Outliers, and you know, I'm just going to sum up that book pretty much in, in like a sentence. Basically what he's saying is that most things that lead to success in life is not anything that you've earned. Your looks, your talents, most of your gifts, most of your intelligence, their scholars are saying now, most of your, even your intelligence is not something that's, that's acquired. It's passed down to you. Most of the things that, that can help to build your success largely come from either biology or legacy or timing. In other words, you did very, very little to earn any of those things. So if you place your identity in any of these things, a very deep-rooted insecurity results. It results in, in anxiety, oftentimes envy, discontent. You know why? Because you had very little to do. It had very little to do with you. Lastly, it's because even if you did little to earn it, because you've placed your identity in these things, now you have to maintain it. So you're going to work and work and work. Work work is going to control you. You've lost yourself because you're trying to save yourself. Stop trying to save yourself. Secondly, stop trying to be strong. Stop trying to cover over your flaws that you have no blemish. The world says you got to build. You got to build. You got to build strength. You got to build power. You got to build your wealth. You cannot show yourself to be weak. Weak people don't move up. But think about this. The most powerful man in the universe, why did he come? What was his mission? It was to become weak. It was to sacrifice himself. It was to sacrifice his wealth, to give up his status and his position, his power, to empty himself. And yet he was raised again. Jesus Christ was raised again. Why? Because his hope, his salvation was not built around power. It was not built around his wealth. It was not built around any of these things. And because it wasn't built around any of those things, when he lost those things, he didn't lose himself. He still had himself. That means that when you fail, when you fall down, when you're in guilt, when you're suffering, God isn't throwing you down. Rather, what's happening is because the ultimate suffering had already been endured for you, your failure, your suffering, these things are incubators. These things are crucibles in which that pressure can actually turn that heart of yours that is, that is as hard as coal into the likeness of Christ, which becomes a pearl, a diamond, 
of great price. Suffering, our crosses, our crucibles where greatness is formed, where greatness is shaped because when you suffer, it connects you to the suffering of Jesus. You're taking your story and if you see your story in the story of Christ, you see that it's all plausible but it's not punishment. God hasn't abandoned you. When you are in Christ, you know that you are shielded from the ultimate suffering. You're shielded from the ultimate condemnation. Then the cross reveals who you really are. It gives you the most realistic picture of yourself because at the cross, what do you see? You see your guilt. You see your sin. You see the price that you've paid and the cost that was paid for your guilt and your sin. It's so big that only Jesus could pay it. And yet, the cross shows us how deeply loved you are. This, you look at your sinfulness, look at your guilt, and yet the cross shows you how deeply loved you are by Jesus. Only he is willing to pay it, and he did. That means you are God's treasure. We always say we're willing to die for the things that we treasure willing to die for the things that we love the most. God sent his own son because he loved you. Until you see how embraced you are by God, until you embrace that reality, you will never be able to look at yourself, your real self. You will never be able to look at the cross and say, yes, that is me. You will never be able to withstand or sustain yourself when somebody says, this is who you are. You'll be able to receive it. You'll be able to accept it you'll be able to reflect on it. A lot of times our community tells us a lot more about who we are than we actually deeply know ourselves because we haven't explored it. We're too ex afraid to explore it. We're all shaped by the things that we love the most. And the Bible teaches us that if it's not your relationship with God that's gonna shape you, I mean, in many ways, your relationship God with God is going to shape you one way or the other, either because you have a thriving relationship with God and that's going to shape you or because you don't have a relationship with God and that's going to shape you. But we're all shaped by the things that we love the most. And if it's not our relationship with God, a growing relationship with God, it's going to be something else, which is why in verse 26, Jesus says, what good will it be if you gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul? if you lose yourself. The lie that we often believe is, if I invest in myself, if I invest in my looks, if I invest in my career, if I bet on myself, if I invest in my relationships, then I will find myself because I'm going to have that special someone. I'm going to have wealth. I'm going to have security. I'm going to have power. These are the things that I need to sustain my life. These are the things that I need to th really thrive. In a sense, you don't need God then. And you're believing that lie, and it is a lie because you're looking at ultimate love and you're saying, you know what, I don't need you. I need to find other loves. You're looking at ultimate power and you're saying, I don't need you. I can find power somewhere else. That's the lie. You're saying, I don't need, you're looking at security, ultimate security. The ultimate foundation, you're saying, I don't need you. I just need to find it somewhere else. I can see it and I can work for that one. And that kind of conclusion is what makes us slaves because you still pay a price. It doesn't free you, it enslaves you. It's the same lie that the devil, in a sense, tempted Adam and Eve with in the Garden of Eden. Follow your desires. You don't need God to find yourself. 
and they listened. And from that point on, they lost themselves because they lost their relationship with God. And because they lost their relationship with God, they lost true love. Now we're, we're desperate for love. They lost true security. Now we're desperate for security. They lost true power. Now we're desperate for power. But what if there is a love? What if there is a security? What if there is a power that is everlasting and immeasurable? And it's personified. It's in a person. And he is willing to sacrifice anything for you, including himself. And yet he knows all your weaknesses. He knows who you really are. He knows your identity, your true self, your failures, your sin. Your spouse can't do this for you because he's broken. She's broken. Your children can't do that for you. They're broken. They're weak. You can't do that for yourself, for another person, because you are still broken and you are still weak. But what if there is a person, everlasting, infinite, infinitely loving, infinitely powerful, who's willing to sacrifice everything for you? Most of us, we're always trying to cover up our flaws. We're denying our sin. Why? Because we're afraid that if we are that well-known, if people see that much into us, it makes us unacceptable. But when you look at the cross, there you see you are that well-known, and yet you are even more loved. There's an abundance of love. That kind of love is not oppressive. That kind of love lasts Ultimately, because it's sustainable. Why? Because it's not based on your record. It's not based on, on your goodness. That kind of love sets you free and shapes you and can transform you. Jesus says in verse 26, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? What he's saying is, if your main pursuit in your life is to enjoy a nice, lengthy, great career where you've just built up your pedigree and your status and your family can live in the perfect neighborhood, what he's saying is you're under control now. If you think about it, a man who's making $500,000 a year, if he places a sense of worth in it, there's nothing wrong with making $500,000 a year, but if you place your sense of worth in it, you're going to work and you're going to work a lot of other things fall by the wayside to maintain that. And if you ever lose your job, or if your reputation is, 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 is damaged in your job or in your career, you lose yourself. You've gained the whole world, but you've lost your soul. Jesus says, I want you to build the pattern of your life around what I sacrificed, what I surrendered to gain you. Let that be your worth. Then you can look at anything and say, this is a good thing. It may be a good thing, but it doesn't define me. If I lose it, it will be hurtful. It will be painful, but I will sustain. In fact, God, is, God will use that to build me even stronger. The best ways that we learn that, what I just said, is through suffering. In one instance, a cord gets pulled from something that gave you strength. And as a result, you are just sapped of your strength. Suffering helps you to realize when you've lost yourself to gain the world. And suffering can then help you, give you help give you strength. The strength that you need to lose the world to find yourself. When you're suffering, Jesus says, 
I want you to remember me who suffered. When you look at the cross, I want you to see what Jesus gained in exchange for his soul. He didn't just risk his life for your soul. He transferred his life. He exchanged his life so that you can have an identity in him. Jesus Christ had an intimate relationship with the Father, the most intimate. He was the heir. He was the son. And yet, he, and as a result, he knew himself. He knew his potential. He knew his options. He had ultimate freedom. He had status and wealth and power, immeasurable. And yet, he came down. And when he came down, he emptied himself of all of his glory. And on the cross, in fact, Isaiah 53 says we wouldn't even recognized him. We wouldn't have even been able to recognize him. And on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? He's saying, I've lost ultimate status. I've lost ultimate position. I've lost ultimate sonship. I've lost ultimate wealth, cosmic wealth, immeasurable wealth, ultimate power. I've lost my life in exchange for my people who are weak and suffering, who've lost themselves, who've rebelled against God. When you see the cross, you see your sin, you see your real self, but you see the power of God that works through the brokenness, the ultimate brokenness and suffering of Jesus. Jesus Christ gave up his identity so that we can have, we can find ourselves in him, union. And when you find yourself in him, that he gave up his status so that you can have ultimate status. He gave up his position so that you can have ultimate position. He gave up his sonship so that you can be called a son of God, a child of God. He gave up his power and his wealth and his glory so that you can have ultimate power, ultimate wealth, ultimate glory. That is what loosens your grip on all these other things that we pursue for our identity. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took on our identity so that we would have his identity. And when you see that, you found yourself, you are a sinner, but redeemed, broken, yet Jesus is making you new. Your view of failure will be different. Your view of suffering will be different. God is not giving up on you. If you use Jesus' defeat to bring about the ultimate salvation, surely he can use your failures and your sufferings to make you new like Jesus. So the point of this next year is not to avoid surrender. We need to surrender. Not to avoid failure. Not to just avoid or avert uh, suffering. But it's to become more like Jesus. Because you will fail. You will fall down. You will be disappointed. You will be betrayed. In small ways, maybe even in big ways. You will hurt. You will get sick. The point is not to just avert these things. On one hand, you don't look for it. But when it happens... You can connect that suffering and that surrender to see what other things is God calling us to surrender so that we can be aligned, lined up in union with Jesus to have the power to then surrender all the more, ever more, to become like, more like him. And he promises that we'll be raised up again. Not even death can hold you down. It's a new year. The best way to start a new year at least this new year, church, is to ask yourself, first, who do you say that Jesus is? I mean, are you just here to hang out with Jesus? 
Who do you say that Jesus is? How you answer that question will be the most shaping influence of your next year. Do you believe that he is the one whom, whom the prophets pointed to? The son of the living God, the Christ, the one whom God had sent to redeem as king. Do you believe that? How will that shape your ambitions, your generosity, your integrity, your sense of mission and meaning and purpose this year? Let's pray.